Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Well, welcome to Mama Crest Mama Chat. <laughs> this is Carolee, and uh, I'm sitting in for Donna, who normally produces and hosts the show, that she and um, Cinematic have taken off for a blogger, a blogger conference. So uh, you get me today, and we may be testing my mother's theory that I could talk to a wall and... <clears throat> Never um, care that nobody answered me back. My my mom always said I always thinks I talk too much. So I'm expecting some callers, some of my fellow Mamacrats to call in, but they haven't yet. So uh, I guess what I'll start with is a thank you to our sponsor, Bubble Genius at BubbleGenius.com, who has all sorts of amazing products, including um, some really just some very cool things, you know, soaps and, and things like that with with sort of a topical political bent to them. So I encourage you to go, not all of them are, but some of them are. I encourage you to go to bubblegenius.com and browse around and see all the cool things they've got there, all environmentally friendly as well. So uh, we have all sorts of news, but I really, really hope we get it. One of my fellow mommocrats in here to uh make it a little more interesting other that either that or I'm gonna start taking callers um if you're listening and you wanna call in and suggest a topic to talk about our uh dial in number is three four seven nine four five six four six five um and in the meantime, I think I'll just go through some of the the top headlines uh, of the week, which I guess we we really gotta start with the uh, action in Libya and how desperate Republicans are to make it look as though um, our president is acting unilaterally to start a, another war. Uh, when in fact, it appears to be uh, that we're not taking the lead, which absolutely has Fox News in a tizzy. Uh, because on the one hand, they don't want to you know they, they don't they don't want us to be there because it's not a Republican doing it. And on the other hand, um, they don't like that we're not leading the charge. That you know, and they've done everything from accuse uh, the president of being anti-American to being anti-exceptionalism, to, which is uh, just insane. But anyway, <clears throat> so there's that. Really, Mama Kratz, you can call in any time. So can you call her. The number is 347-945-6465. So there's that. Um, And I see that we have a tragic bus bombing uh, in Jerusalem. And since we don't know really what the cause of that is, uh, although the Israeli police are saying it's uh, Palestinian terrorists who did it, our hearts go out to the families of those who are dead and injured in that accident. Um, so let me let me start with one of my favorite topics here, which is um, today is the anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. It is Healthcare Reform Day, and uh, you know for all the the beatings and poundings that this this healthcare law has taken and continues to take in the press. It's doing real things for real people, and I can't stress enough how uh, oh good we've got a caller here. I can't stress enough how um, how how important it's going to be. It is and will be. So uh, let's see who we've got on the line here. Hello. Hi, this is Jaylis. Yay! <laughs> Hi, Jaylis. 
I, I don't know. I think my mom was wrong. I don't think I could talk to myself for an hour. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, this is Jay with Judy with Mamacrats, and I apologize for being a little late on the radio show today, but I was having some technical difficulties with my new Skype installation. My computer hard drive died this weekend. Oh. So. <laughs> so everything. Yeah. So my apologies uh, to our audience, but here I am. Yay! So I was just getting to the uh, the fact that today is the anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, the one year anniversary, believe it or not, of health care reform. It, it seems amazing to me, and it's not, you, you know, while it's not everything that we want, it's still helping people. It's helping us. I mean, my my twenty one year old who's uninsurable is on our insurance. So. Yeah, and and I think it is helping a lot of people who previously were not able to get uh, health care coverage. Unfortunately, I personally feel like, um, you know, the insurance companies have put up a lot of fight um, in the, you know, in the years since the bill passed, and a lot of them have been, you know, using the windows they had before some of these regulations are scheduled to go into effect to raise rates and make it more difficult. I know in my family, um, immediately, like the week after healthcare reform passed, the insurance company that we had at the time um, sent us an, in, a health insurance audit, making us prove that we all were legitimately on the insurance. And then a couple yeah. weeks later, uh, yeah, so I, th- I feel like, you know, they're really fighting um, the change and trying to get as many people kicked off as possible. And I, so as happy as I am that the bill passed and that we've made some progress on this issue, I really hope that, um, you know, not obviously it's not going to happen in this Congress with the Republican majority in the House, but I'm hoping that, you know, maybe by the next Congress the need will be seen to... Uh, enforce the law, the spirit of the law, a little more effectively. I don't know. What do you think about that? No, I agree. I mean, one of my disappointments has been how many waivers have been granted to companies that, you know, waivers as far as complying with the um, expense ratios, you know, which were supposed to be essentially 85% of every dollar spent with an insurance company was supposed to go to benefits that a lot of uh, companies have applied for and been granted waivers of that requirement uh, on a year-to-year basis. Um, I agree with that. I, I still maintain that, that the, the only issue that that this bill solved, I know that it was huge and, you know, we can go on about the 2,400-page health care bill, but it was all about pre-existing conditions. And until we got, get rid of pre-existing conditions, until that and that's what they're fighting tooth and nail right now. Yeah. Is um, when that goes, when that's no longer something they can do, then there's going to be some changes, and it's going to they'll be forced to change economically. I mean, it, because it will no longer be the profit center, you know, the cherry-picked profit center that it's been. And that's why Republicans would really love to just repeal the whole thing and put in things like risk pools, you know, national. They'll claim that they're they're getting rid of pre-existing conditions, but they're doing it by using risk bans, you know, so that yeah. if you were unfortunate enough, for example, to have a child who has medical needs. Which I do. You will, yeah. <laughs> you'll not only be forced to have insurance, but you'll be forced to pay ten times what anybody, you know, the people with healthy kids will pay. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, the 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 part of the bill that requires um, insurance companies to provide insurance to children with pre-existing conditions, I think is the most important part because really, you know, just from a moral perspective, this idea that we would be denying children um, access to health insurance that their parents are willing to pay for um, just because they have, you know, I mean, for instance, my son has a peanut allergy And I am well aware that if I were to try, you know, I'm a small business owner, and right now I have insurance through my husband's employer. But until the insurance system gets changed more effectively, um, you know, one of us is always going to have to be someone's employee because 
it, I know that right now it would be nearly impossible for us to afford a private insurance policy um, on the insurance market, even with the reforms that have been passed thus far, because not all of them have gone into effect yet. You know, some of them were scheduled to go into, to go into effect in 2012 or 2014. So, um, right. but I do think, you know, as as someone who has a child with a health issue that can be seen by insurance companies as a deal breaker in terms of giving you a policy, you know, a child who's otherwise pretty healthy, I might add, you know. Right. Um, not that that should even matter, but I think that, you know, it, it's really important that that got written into the legislation. Um, but I, I'm sure you recall that just a couple weeks after the bill passed, the insurance companies were already trying to weasel out of that uh, part of the legislation and trying to say, oh, well, we just won't issue any new insurance policies to children then, you know, and right. and trying to find every loophole they could. And so... Um, I mean, they've backed down a bit from that under serious pressure from the Obama administration, but this is why I was disappointed that there wasn't a public option included in the bill because I feel like the insurance companies right now have very little incentive to comply with the spirit of the legislation unless they are forced to. Um, But if there had been a public option included, you know, even just an option for people who wanted to to buy into Medicaid, then suddenly they would be faced with more competition and would have to, you know, consider the fact that some of their that, – that people might be choosing to buy the government plan over um, a private insurance plan, which I think – I don't know. But, again, that, that argument has already been <laughs> argued. <laughs> well, you know, it, it has – and I agree with you. I mean, a, a lot of people have accused me of being sort of an apologist because I'm not – um, as disappointed, but the reason I, I agree with you, a public option would have been great. Uh, buy-in the Medicare would have been great. I mean, we can thank Lieberman that we didn't get that buy-in because yeah. I think there would have been full support for that. Um, and it would solve a lot of Medicare's problems, to be perfectly honest. They, they, right now, Medicare covers the most expensive people without any of the least expensive people on it. So, um, you know, having the full buy-in the Medicare would have, as an option would have been great. Of course, that wasn't going to happen because insurance companies understand, just as you just said, that if that were an option, they'd be forced to compete with that, and they don't want to compete with that. Right. And sadly enough, now what you're seeing is because of the backlash, because of the Tea Party, because of the midterms, there's just some incredibly wacko things going on in states with Medicaid and um, public assistance programs and... (laughs) I mean, I, I, I just wrote a post yesterday about um, John Kasich, who I, I think wants to just privatize all of Ohio, to be honest with you. I mean, the, the man is insane. He's, he wants to sell jails. He wants to privatize the turnpike. He wants Yeah, to, I, I saw the news last night that they in Ohio the state owns some liquor stores and they make money off of the liquor tax, and he wants to even privatize that well, and yeah, divert that money. That's a really interesting situation because not only does he want to privatize it, but he wants to be in it's, – it's not really privatized. He just wants to move the money to a sort of state jobs fund that will then go and court, like, corporations to come and do business in Ohio or start yeah. up in Ohio. But you know who's going to be in charge of it? Kasich. I mean, he's going to manage the $238 million plus that comes through and – so let's just call it what it is. It's a payoff slush fund, right? Well, That's what he wants to get into. And also, if corporate tax breaks really were going to pull us out of the recession, they would have done so already because the federal government has already granted, you know, numerous tax breaks under the Bush administration, even before the recession, you know, right. the corporate tax rates were significantly reduced. So this idea that, well, we'll, we'll incentivize companies to come to our state with tax breaks I, and then they'll create more jobs, I think is, you know, it's not valid in terms of an economic stimulus because we've already been trying that. And <laughs> it hasn't worked in terms of, you know, I mean, jobs have been the last thing to come back in the economy. The stock market is doing great. Corporations are doing are making record profits right now and have been for the past couple of years, really. Um, Mm -hmm. But they're just not hiring people and giving them more money when they are already sitting on more money than they've had in a really long time and still choosing not to hire people. 
you know, I don't think is the solution to that problem. I I, I think that if if states want to stimulate their local economies, what they need to do is focus on the people who are suffering most, who are working class Americans, who are unemployed or, you know, about to lose their homes, and think about how to get more money into those people's pockets because those people are going to spend money immediately. They're not going to sit on it. They're going to spend they're going to go out into their community and spend money immediately at the grocery store, at the car repair shop, you know, and and that money then is going to circulate through the local economy and create jobs. And and a lot of really well-respected economists, you know, agree that the best way to, to stimulate an economy is not to give tax breaks to those at the top of the economy, but because they're more likely to hold on to that money until the economic uncertainty has passed, but to give money to, you know, to, to increase food stamps for um, people below the poverty line, to give tax breaks to working-class families, because those people are the people who must spend the money, and they will go out and spend it immediately, and that's much more stimulative. And, you know, this this whole, I I seem to recall when Ronald Reagan was president that a lot of economists were really upset with his trickle-down economic policies, and after Ronald Reagan ceased to be president, you know, before the sort of restoration of Ronald Reagan and the Republican Party as this sort of demigod figure, <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of Republicans were really derogatory toward his economic policies and said, oh, you know, trickle-down economics failed and Reaganomics failed. I mean, I mean, there used to be this term that got tossed around Reaganomics in a, in a derogatory sort of way. And even conservatives, staunch conservatives, agreed that his his policies uh, hadn't succeeded in creating economic growth. And then, you know, under Clinton, we had vast economic growth with different with uh, different policy coming out of the administration. So it it irks me <laughs> to no end to see these sort of Reagan style policies of let's cut tax breaks for the very wealthy and it will trickle down to the rest of us being uh being rehashed and promoted again, even though everyone you know, ten years ago everyone knew that they were a bad idea. <laughs> Right. Well, it worries me, too. Um, I, you know, you pointed out the fact that corporations have had record profits. And um, I had read, I don't know, about a month ago that the reason they're not hiring is because they're basically stashing the cash for takeovers. You know, right. so I, I'm afraid we're going back to the sort of the hostile takeover era. But, you know, the first salvo was fired over the weekend when AT&T announced they were buying T-Mobile USA. Mm-hmm. And they're... They're buying it for $25 billion, that's with a B, in cash and stock. So the, the total purchase price is $39 billion, so $14 billion in stock and $25 billion in cash. Gosh, they're just sitting around on $25 billion in cash. Yeah. That, well, <laughs> and I also, you know, that, that brings up another point, which is, you know, the, deregul- the deregulation um, climate that led to the Great Recession in the first place. Um, has allowed these huge corporations to buy up other huge corporations. And and it seems to me to definitely violate the principle of um, the anti-monopoly laws that we used to have in this country to prevent, you know, I mean, because people like to talk about how important the free market is, but, um, you know, previously leaders in America knew that, you can't have a totally free market. It doesn't exist in the real world. You know, eventually some business is going to consolidate a lot of power and take over the market and create a monopoly, and then it's no longer a free market system because smaller businesses can't compete anymore. And it used to be that we had some protection in place for small businesses to keep markets competitive, which also protects consumers, of course, Um but you know now it's it seems to me over the past few years we've just had one acquisition after another and this started in the banking sector which we all know you know a decade ago when all these banks started merging and your neighborhood bank got swallowed up by a new bank every other month and your you know they kept sending you a new ATM card <laughs> we all know what the result of that was the result of that was you know um corporate malfeasance people not watching their own investments um and the Great Recession. And then if you look at 
what's happening now with other corporations like AT&T buying out T-Mobile. I mean, obviously, AT&T failing isn't going to cause the same sort of economic crash as, say, Lehman Brothers. But um, it seems to me that, that, you know, you can get these businesses that just get – the the buzzword was too big to fail, but I think they're too big to handle, you know. I mean, they can't be uh, overseen properly by their leadership because they're just too enormous, and there's also not enough competition to keep them honest and keep uh, their services affordable. So right. I'm and, really and glad the- that I switched – out of AT&T last month. Well, you know, it's funny. I left AT&T and went to Singular, and they bought Singular, so I ended up right. back at AT&T. And then, um, you know, I have friends that have been at T-Mobile because they are not AT&T, and now they're going to end up being with AT&T again. And, um, you know, they've broken up AT&T once. They did it, and, and the only person who got hurt with that breakup was really the consumer um, because they broke it up and then AT&T bought it all back, you know, yeah. <laughs> over time. Yeah. So, so they they broke some union contracts and they uh, laid off a whole lot of employees and they, you know, basically streamlined their operations, made a lot of money, and then started acquiring all those baby bells again through mergers and everything else. And now they're back to being the old AT&T, AT&T's that they were, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, only um, now they control even more because if you think about it, you know, now the phone company also provides you with Internet service and, in many cases, your television service. And right. I, I know um, a lot of progressives, including me, were made really nervous by the Comcast-NBC merger because that was a telecommunications provider merging with a content provider, um, which seems to be a huge conflict of interest, you know, but that sailed right through. <laughs> And yeah, and it, well, it didn't sail, but yeah, it got through, unfortunately. Well, I kind of felt like it sailed through, considering how what what a what grave concerns so many people had about how um, that merger might affect people's access to news um, and access mm-hmm. to to content. I think um, you know, I I kind of felt like it, the the government put on a show of investigating and and you know, making up, drawing up some regulations for them, but it doesn't seem to me like, I mean, in my opinion, that merger should never have been approved at all under any circumstances because you just shouldn't have a, an enormous monopolistic uh, service provider like Comcast where, in, you know, there are some neighborhoods in the United States where if you want internet, internet access and TV access, you can only get it through Comcast. I mean, I know in my neighborhood, I can only get high-speed internet access through charter cable. Um, right, I can only I, get it through Sun Warner, and I resisted for a very long time, but I finally gave in and did it because I couldn't stand not having it anymore. Yeah, yeah I know. So I don't know. So I these these big business mergers are definitely nervous making, and I agree with you that that might be that might well be the reason that a lot of these businesses aren't hiring. It's it's the same reason I think that a lot of housing speculators aren't buying houses right now. You know, they're waiting to see they're waiting for the market to bottom out so they can buy up a bunch of property on the cheap. I think that, uh, you know, that's also the case in big business right now is that a lot of businesses are waiting for their uh, competitors to falter and in the hope yep. that they can buy them up. So, Or, in you know, T-Mobile isn't, has claims that the iPhone was killing their business. I, I, I'm a little surprised by that because the Android's been taking off. But, um, and I'm an iPhone user, but... Uh, you know, they claim that the iPhone has been killing their business in the U.S., and that's why they sold to AT&T, because then you can get the iPhone at AT&T. I don't think I believe that. But um, the fact is is that what we're going to end up with is just a very few corporate entities supplying necessities, and then they're going to jack up the prices, and it's going to be us who pays, pays those prices, you know, if we can. And And it's just more... It, 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 it redistributes the wealth even more upward, you know. <laughs> yeah. So the <laughs> yeah. Well, so and it's not like you know when it comes to buying things for your house, like food or furniture, you can you can visit a local business, you can patronize a small business and support 
a competitive economy that way. But when it comes to cell phone service, which many people absolutely require these days in order to stay employed, <laughs> when it comes yeah. to cell phone service, you you can't really find a small provider to support. I mean, for progressives, there is Credo Mobile, but that runs on the Sprint network, and Sprint is another enormous corporation. So, you know, we really don't have a, a lot of choices in terms of um, putting together... <laughs> Any yeah. sort of resistance to these big corporate uh, mergers. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the public can do other than just complain about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I complain about it and vote. You know, in the next election, don't. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I'm when you had eight years basically of conservatives. I mean, Obama's not going to come in and change everything. Yeah, and, agreed. You know, the, in two years or three years, and and especially not, you know, there's days where I read the news cycle and I think, man, if I were Barack Obama, I'd be like, screw this, I'm done after four years. <laughs> I know. The man did inherit a lot of problems, and he faced a lot of uh, unexpected disasters in the first months of his presidency. So I, I do I do have a lot of compassion for the man, despite, despite my occasional disagreements with him, uh, some of which are serious. <laughs> I think that you know, he's under a, a tremendous amount of pressure, and he's had to deal with more crises than any president in recent history. I would say, you know, anybody since maybe World War II, because yeah. we were fighting two wars when he came into office and um, in the midst of the greatest economic disaster since the Great Depression. So, um, And I also think, too, that, you know, as frustrated as I get with things like President Obama failing to support a public option in the health care bill like we were just talking about earlier in the show, um, you know, I think it's important not to forget the unprecedented opposition that the man has been facing from a news network that is entirely dedicated to bringing down his policies, you know, Fox News, um, oh. which is <laughs> – that that's not happened in the history of the presidency before, that there's been an entire news network, you know, explicitly – and and painfully obviously devoted to attacking one political party. And then, um, you know, also I think that he's faced a lot of dirty politics from the right, um, you know, a lot of a lot of race baiting, a lot of, especially with, with the Tea Party, when you look at some of the symbolism and the language that they use, you know, it, I just think it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> It's like beyond the level of of I I don't understand why honestly how the mainstream media gets away with pretending that that um that that stuff is not going on you know or gets away with supporting people like James O'Keefe who go around planning sexual attacks on CNN reporters and then and and editing uh egregiously editing tapes and presenting them to the to the mainstream media as you know, truthful, and then, you know, a week later. It's like with this latest thing that James O'Keefe did, the NPR uh, expose that he supposedly yeah. put together. I, You know, how did anyone not know at this point that it, that from James O'Keefe would be edited? How, how would anyone not, not anticipate that? And yet, you know, a couple days after that story broke, you saw – in the news that if you, those people who were paying attention, I should say, could have seen that a two-hour longer version of the audio from the discussion with the NPR executive had been released and that all of that, you know, had been drastically edited to make it sound like the man was expressing opinions that he didn't actually hold, you know. And uh, and it, you see, you know, respected Internet news sources like Politico saying, oh, gosh, we had no idea. We had no idea that this man could have edited this tape. <laughs> you know? And, and, and you know that's so disingenuous. That's just nonsense because yeah. he's edited every tape he's ever released. I mean, it, and, and this is the tactic. He, he releases the edited tape. It gets traction in the mainstream media. And then NPR, by the way, stepped on their own foot as far as I'm concerned. Actually they stepped on their own neck by by being so apologetic over it. I mean the, the first of all the guy wasn't a reporter. He was a fundraiser. Second of all, he wasn't even there anymore. And the, it, it should have just simply been, yeah, you know, those were his opinions. 
and, you know, we're going to look into this a little bit more carefully. And they should have looked into it instead of, or let their reporters look into it instead of just simply apologizing for it. Yeah. Which, of course, that set the stage then for, you know, the, the whole feeding frenzy to, to well, take place. Well, and I think, I think the media has gotten trapped in a cycle that is driven by Fox News, which is why I brought this up, because I think it's it it's an example of how... Um, Okay, we know that if Breitbart or O'Keefe put out any sort of supposedly earth-shaking revelation about someone left of center, that Fox News is going to run with it and we and and have it on all day long, you know, 24 hours a day. And we also know that Fox News' MO is to then accuse the other networks of being biased for not showing it. Right? Even if the other networks are not showing this information because it's false or because it's from an unreliable source like James O'Keefe, we know that Fox News is going to go on and on about how those liberals over at MSNBC and those crazy progressives at CNN are are not showing you this, but we have the exclusive. You know, and they feel like the the way they keep responding to this is like it's a really ineffective, in my opinion, manner of responding. But the way the way that the other news networks keep responding to Fox's abuse um, is to show how objective they really, really are by giving equal time to these people who they know are insane. <laughs> you know? This is all part of the strategy. It, it, it really is. It's, it's um, you know, the, this idea that the whole false equivalence thing and, you know, how well, you know, there's there's these people have done it over here too. And, you know, like, for example, with the NPR thing, they brought up, the punking of Scott Walker by the Daily Beast editor. And, you know, here's the difference. There was no editing of that tape with Scott Walker. That's that's yeah. what they all, you know, overlook, and they do it on purpose, in my opinion. Fox News, I, I never watched Fox News. I had never watched it. But for the last month or so, I have been. And it's horrifying. I mean, literally, it will fry your brain cells. I'm I'm convinced of that because <laughs> it's it's not only nonstop. It's like you said, they they take a theme and they hammer it home over and over and over and over again, and to the point where you know the the rule is if you repeat something six times, you remember it, or if you hear it six times, you remember it. So uh, when right. they they're just going over and over and over again, that sticks in your head. And if you're vulnerable to that or you're not yeah. paying attention or you don't care about it, it sticks in your head, and that's what you remember. Well, and, I mean, we have you know? to keep in mind, it makes your blood boil, it makes my blood boil, but a majority of people who watch cable news watch Fox News. So clearly their formula is working to attract an audience. Um, unfortunately, it's also working to spread misinformation, which is obviously the plan. I mean, there have been several studies that have shown that people who get their news from Fox News are the least informed, especially when it comes to politics and government. They, they're they the least informed, and they believe information that is totally false, like they believe that President Obama is a Muslim and that he's, you know, a, there's some Muslim conspiracy to take over the U.S. government, which is ridiculous, <laughs> you know, but people believe it because they watch Fox News, and that's constantly implied. So um, I do want to take a minute, though, since it's, since it's about at the half hour mark of our show, um, we should mention our sponsor, Bubble Genius, who Absolutely. they're at bubblegenius.com and um, they sell a variety of great soaps and bath products, including some vegan options. And they also uh, have a special program called uh, Give a Soldier a Shower. And you can sign up to uh, send some bath products to our soldiers overseas, which a lot of people, um, a, a, a lot of our troops have difficulty getting access to basic toiletry products. Um, so it's a really helpful thing that is often overlooked. And the the thing that I think is totally excellent and awesome about this program is that they include a foo bar of soap, which is my favorite bar of soap ever. <laughs> so I just wanted to mention, I just wanted to mention that. Because um, they're they great, have, and we appreciate. They also have doggy care products, which the pug loves. I just have to throw that in there because she does. So that's important to mention. You have personal experience, so. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. So, so yeah, no, they're great. I, I love Bubble Genius. And, you know, it's always fun to see somebody running a business with um, a sense of humor, too. Yeah. You know, like the products are, some of them are fun and funny and cute and just, it's a neat place. Go go visit it. Yeah, and, and we're saying that not just because they sponsor our show. We actually really, really love their site and think they're great people. So exactly. <laughs> it's a great fit. <laughs> okay, well, you know, I wanted to bring up, while we're talking about um, the media spin cycle, I wanted to bring up what's going on in Libya right now. Um, it looks like we may be on the brink of a third war. <laughs> What do you think about that? I I have seen I I managed to watch the O'Reilly Factor for about five minutes last night, which is about my level of tolerance for Bill O'Reilly <laughs> when he's not on the Daily Show. I can watch him I can watch him if he's tempered by John Stewart, but that's you know other than outside of that, I can tolerate him for about five minutes. So I watched the O'Reilly Factor for about five minutes last night. And during the five minutes I was watching, Megan Kelly, another Fox News <laughs> was on. And Megan Kelly seems to have suddenly developed a passionate dedication to defending the constitutional separation of powers. I'm not sure where this came from, because Megan Kelly never seemed to have any issue with President Bush authorizing military action all over the Middle East. And, you know, specifically in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also elsewhere in minor operations. She never, she never, as as far as I can recall, I never remember seeing a headline about Megyn Kelly criticizes President Bush for exceeding his executive authority. But last night on Fox News, Megyn Kelly was seriously and deeply concerned that President Obama has authorized military force in Libya to enforce this no-fly zone that the UN has recommended to protect civilians there from Colonel Gaddafi, who is currently attacking his own citizens because of the protests that have been going on there, um, the pro-democracy protests that have been going on since the revolution in Egypt took place. And, you know, (laughs) the thing is, I actually agree. This is one of the cases in which I I have to say, reluctantly, I agree with Megyn Kelly. Sorry, but I had to say it. I agree with Megyn Kelly that, you know, I think the Constitution clearly outlines that the Congress ought to be consulted um, when the president is sending troops overseas. However, I do think there's a legitimate argument also that we're part of the UN. This is not a U.S.-led action. This is a UN-led action. UN and NATO are both involved in maintaining this no-fly zone, and we have treaty obligations to the UN and to NATO to commit troops to operations like this that are peacekeeping operations. And this isn't the U.S. going and declaring war in Libya. And I think that perhaps uh, President Obama thought, well, if I do get congressional authorization, that is essentially the U.S. declaring war in Libya, which we really don't want to be seen doing right now since, you know, the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan were so very unpopular and, in my opinion, morally um, morally questionable, let's put it that way. And, and um, you know, those who were watching the 2004 Democratic National Convention where Barack Obama spoke might recall that he spoke vociferously against the war in Iraq and called it a dumb war that he was opposed to. So he would look like a major hypocrite starting a, an all-out war in Libya. But what do you think of the situation? Well, to me, Libya looks a little bit more like Kosovo than it does like Afghanistan. Yeah, um, I agree. And Clinton, you know, when it went in via a U.S.-led um, U.N. action, U.N.-approved, anyway, action to bomb Kosovo in order to bring Milosevic down. And it, it, I'm ambivalent about Libya. I, I think it is a very difficult country. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's when you have essentially three generations in a country that's been governed by a, a maniac, you, it's hard to know what what you're getting into. On the other hand, how how could we not? I mean, it, I was seeing these um, you know tweets and, and and things come just crossing in real time. You know, where they, they were people were just being slaughtered by this. Yeah, thing. 
I and agree, I mean, and you know, I think I think in this case, the living people were actually asking the United Nations right. to come in. They were asking loudly and mm-hmm. publicly for help um, because of the of what you were mentioning. You, you know, it, ordinary citizens being just killed in the streets for having the gall to protest a dictatorship run by, as you said, a maniac. And if anyone is questioning whether we are being partisan in describing Gaddafi as a maniac, just watch one of his speeches for five minutes. Seriously, this guy is crazier than Charlie Sheen. But um, I think, you know, it's, it's, we are in a tough position. The United States is in a very tough position in terms of doing any sort of infer- intervention um, in North Africa or the Middle East because of what we did in Iraq. Because we went into Iraq on the pretext that we were liberating Iraq, but the Iraqi people did not particularly want us there in the first place. And so now, you know, Colonel Gaddafi has this ammunition to use against us to say, well, look, here's the United States again invading a country without permission, and I think that puts us on, unfortunately, very shaky ground, even when we do have good intentions and have, in fact, been invited and asked to help. So I do think that it's a good thing that this is a U.N.-led action and not a U.S.-led action. Um, I also wonder, you know, I agree with you that this is a really difficult situation where the people really needed help. They needed military help from the outside, and I and I think that we are doing a right and noble thing by coming to the aid of ordinary people who want democracy in their country. But at the same time, you know, what about what's been going on in the rest of Africa for the past decade? What about what's been happening in the Congo? You know, there there have been genocides and, and um, terrible civil wars going on in Africa for years and years. And, you know, we, we didn't help in Darfur. We didn't help. So, so my well, question is, what is it about Libya that makes it okay for us to step in there, and it was not okay for us to step in elsewhere? I I strongly suspect that it unfortunately has to do a lot with geography and the color of people's skin. Honestly, because I feel like you know, if something happens to people in the southern part of Africa. That's just Africa. That's just a tragedy in Africa that we have no power to prevent. But if something happens in 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 North Africa, you know, in Egypt or in Libya, then all of a sudden we have a duty to to support democracy there. And I don't understand. You know, what is the what is the difference that compels us to aid Libya? I think we could start by just saying realistically, oil certainly plays a role. I mean, it yes. would be insane to not say that. And, and if you look at the, the WikiLeaks documents that have been released, um, you know, there's there's a lot of... Gaddafi uses the oil. Basically, he uses Libya's oil as, a, as leverage. And, um, you know, he'll do a deal, then he'll break a deal. He'll do a deal, and he'll break a deal. I mean, this is part of his whole insanity thing. He's pocketing most of the cash from that. He's putting his country in, you know, the majority of the people in that country are being forced into poverty because, you know, he's essentially pocketing the money from the oil sales. If we don't, as a country, like, resolve that we're going to reject living with, with oil as our primary fuel source, we're going to find ourselves dragged into stuff like this all the time. You know, I mean, it's. Just, I don't see any way around that. But, but beyond that, I mean, your point about Darfur is one that's well taken, and that was something that, I mean, was really blowing up under George Bush. That didn't happen, and and then you have to ask yourself, well, you know, what what sort of ripple effect might that have had 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 we intervened in in Darfur? Now, in Libya, in this case, I mean, I do believe that. That it's to Obama. The only way this works to Obama's benefit is if the U.S. has this limited mission of taking out the air, you know, Qaddafi's air defenses and communications network, and then steps back and lets you know and, and hands it off. If that happens, then I would say it's probably a good thing 
what we did. And I don't think, by the way, I think Congress has to be notified, but I don't think they have to approve an action like that. And it, he did notify Congress. He called them, he talked to them before authorizing it, yeah. the, the congressional leaders. I think when you're committing to a longer-term thing with um, troops on the ground or whatever, then you may be looking at the need to notify Congress. But and again, I'm not an expert on this. I, I, I'm going to give a plus here to Angry Black Lady um, because she wrote a whole post with all the legal, like all the nuances that went into the thinking around this, um, which I haven't fully digested yet, but it's angryblacklady.com. You can go there and read her post. <laughs> um, it's, it's really good. But overall, oil is going to play a big role here. And then... and. And then I think the one time that we really did try to intervene, um, it was such a failure. That was Clinton in Somalia. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it, it really tainted kind of the whole effort in Africa. But yeah, for the U.S. I'll, I'll but be it's, honest. It's not my. It, this is not my area of expertise. I could talk about Afghanistan and Iraq all day long and Iran, but but Libya. It has my my knowledge based on that is basically limited to knowing that Gaddafi is in that case. <laughs> yeah, I'll admit that my knowledge of Libya is not encyclopedic either. I wonder if perhaps on a future show we might uh, have a guest who specializes in Libya so that we can have a really nice discussion about all the political um, realities there. And so consider this a, an open call, listeners, right. if you have. Um, if you have expertise on Libya, if you've lived there, if you have relatives who live there and you and you feel like you have a good handle on the political situation there and what the U.S. intervention might mean for the people living there, uh, we'd be happy to hear from you because this is something that I don't personally have um, a lot of background or experience in. So, But I, I think that, you know, from the U.S. perspective, we can still speak about what does it mean for the U.S. to be getting involved in yet another conflict overseas, you know, and... And how does this affect our foreign policy in general? And should we really be playing the role of world police? <laughs> and if so, you know, why are we policing one region and not and not another? I think those are all important questions that we should be thinking about. But you know, uh, Carly, something you mentioned made me think about the nuclear disaster in Japan um, that is currently unfolding in the wake of the tsunami and the earthquake there. You had talked about our dependence on oil being one of the reasons why we would intervene in Libya. Um, and I agree that that is probably a serious motivation. Um, one of the ways that a lot of people have proposed that we get off of our addiction to foreign oil is to build more nuclear power plants. But as we've seen, um, given the recent disaster in in Japan that is continuing to cause trouble. I just heard this morning, for example, that the drinking water in Tokyo, the tap water there, has now been declared unsafe for infants because the radiation level in the tap water is too high and could cause mm-hmm. permanent damage if babies drink it. So now parents are having to go get bottled water for their kids um, until this crisis passes. <clears throat> you know, I think I think this disaster has caused a lot of people to rethink um, just how safe a nuclear power power plant really is here in the United States because obviously we also have earthquake-prone areas, especially in California and the Pacific Northwest. We have areas that are prone to earthquakes and tsunamis, just like in Japan, and we have areas that are prone to volcanic activity. And um, I think, you know, here in the Midwest, too, we have we have tornadoes and floods and pretty much anywhere you go, there's the potential for natural disasters to happen. Um, and I think I think what was so shocking to people about this is that obviously Japan has a terrible but serious reason to be highly concerned, perhaps more so than any other country, about damage from radiation because of what happened during World War II with Hiroshima and Nagasaki being bombed. And I think that... Japan, you know, the Japanese culture is very concerned about protecting their citizens from radiation, and they're also probably one of the best engineered countries in the world in terms of preventing damage from earthquakes because it's such an earthquake-prone region. So when you think about the fact that Japan, which is a country that, A, has great reason to be concerned and careful when it comes to radiation, and B, 
you know, is is absolutely an expert. You know, they they have a high level of expertise at building buildings that resist uh, damage from natural disasters. When you when you consider that and consider that this plant was still taken out and is still melting down and causing um, <clears throat> a localized disaster. You know that I know that scares me, and I'm a person. I will admit my bias. I have never been a strong proponent of nuclear power, but I have been sort of willing to accept the argument that nuclear is better than oil or coal. What do you think about what we should well, be? like like you? I, I've also I also agree that I've been willing to accept that argument, except not in California. <laughs> I mean, we have two. Re- I, I, I sit like almost directly between two reactors: one on the north, one to the south. And the one to the north is sitting sitting close to four separate earthquake faults. And the one in the south isn't quite as vulnerable, but it's also not rated for an earthquake above six point five. So um, they make me nervous and have for years. Especially, what I would like to see, I guess, is some real serious research and development in solar and wind and uh, and all these other things, um, particularly, I guess, solar and wind here in California. Um, but I, I think, I mean, we have to put Japan in perspective. A 9.0 earthquake is catastrophic. There's nothing, yeah. nobody could build against a 9.0 earthquake. Um, and you could, the best you could do is take every precaution possible and hope for the best. Now, what I get upset about with Japan and what concerns me in the U.S. is that it is the um, the, the problem was obviously the earthquake and then the cooling. But what has really set everything off was how they were storing their spent rods, and and it was the storage of the spent rods that they were putting on top of the reactors that's caused the biggest problems. And and you think to yourself, who, what were they thinking? And if we can't figure out a way to dispose of these things in a safe manner that, that's not going to endanger people down the line in the event of a catastrophe, then, yeah, we need to think about what we're doing here and maybe come up with different options. Yeah. Um, but if, well, if any transition is going to be a long one, I mean, I think nuclear has to play a role until we've got the R&D for better, cleaner, safer See, to deliver I hear a lot of people say that. I hear a lot of people saying nuclear has to play a role because we just don't have the capacity to support the current demands for power in the U.S. using solar and wind. And and I see pundits saying that on on cable news shows all the time. I see, you know, it seems to be like conventional wisdom that it's impossible to transition to green power without employing nuclear. But um, last year, last summer, I wrote a piece for Momocrats about the state of wind power in the United States because I had just seen a really remarkable study coming out of Harvard University on wind power capacity in the United States. And... um, it was it was done by a group of environmental scientists um at Harvard and the study which was done, you know, um actually I want it's 2 years ago. It wasn't last year, I'm sorry. It was in 2009 that the study was done. Uh the study found that the United States with strategically placed wind turbines that actually, you know, took into account the fact that you need to preserve migratory bird populations and you need to you know, not put wind turbines where they're going to interfere with people's views of the ocean and and that sort of thing. Even if you take into account some of those restrictions, the United States actually has the capacity, supposedly, um, to generate 16 times the amount of electricity we're currently using with wind power alone. And when I read this study, I was astonished because I had been, you know, convinced of the conventional wisdom, which is that, oh, we couldn't possibly, you know, there's not enough wind in the world to power the United States, but apparently there's plenty of wind, there are plenty of places to build wind turbines, and actually, you know, there are great stimulus for the economy. I remember a couple of years ago, um, I went to this We Can Solve It event, which is, uh, you know, Al Gore's organization that he started um, to 
promote discussion about climate change, I went to this We Consolved event in Granite City, Illinois. And Granite City, just like it's a town that is just like its name. You know, it sounds like a a little tiny industrial town. It is. And the primary uh, source of income in that town for decades was a steel plant that had been shut down. And but you know there there was this event that I went to a couple of years ago in this little tiny tiny town that was a summit between the Weekend Solve It uh, representatives, the Sierra Club, and the local steelworkers union, <laughs> which let me tell you was an interesting party. <laughs> Can I interrupt you for just a second? Because I think we have sure. do we have Julie? Uh, did you? We have yes, a caller here. Yes, I'm. I'm here. Oh, okay. It's Julie. Hi, Julie. I just wanted Hi, to make sure you knew we knew you were there. <laughs> Thank you. I was just listening with interest to what uh, Jayleth was saying. Okay. We have like four minutes left on this show, so I just wanted to um, get you in there. And I'm sorry, Jayleth, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, oh, no. No, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to say, you know, it, it seems like a lot of middle America could really benefit from uh, the production of wind turbines and solar panels, which would, you know, really revitalize our construction and manufacturing industries that have been really hard hit by the recession. So that that was all I wanted to say. Um, but go ahead, Julie. You're you're talking T Boone Pickens language right there, Jayla. <laughs> I think it's I think it's absolutely nothing less than fascinating that um you know, T. Boone Pickens here in Texas just buzzing around talking about wind power. I, I I know he's really working hard to to make it make everybody else accept that it's the next great thing. I know that my mayor, my mayor here in my little town wanted to put up a couple. She wanted to be able to offer the opportunity to our town to take ourselves off the grid, and she wanted to put in our own wind turbines because we live right here on the water. We we have pretty much constant wind. We could harness a lot of power. Storing it is a challenge, um, but if it was being distributed around our tiny town, and our town is tiny, um, just a couple of wind turbines would do that, and then we would no longer be, um, you know, we live in a deregulated area, so we are completely dependent on the power structure and the, not to be too punny about it, but the winds of change, and, you know, it's it's impossible because it's unregulated here. Our our power our, our utility costs can just skyrocket at any time, and uh, even locking in the low rates doesn't work. And so what she wanted to be able to do was offer kind of a cooperative where we weren't as dependent on that. And I, I think that's just such a unique idea for a new model for power um, to have smaller communities generate their own power. I think actually that's a good model for the future. What do you guys think? I I, I agree. agree. Yeah. You know, this is like a whole show's worth we could do on this. Um, and we've got two minutes left in this one. So can I just change the subject a little bit? I just wanted to acknowledge that this is the anniversary to, of the um, – uh, just a minute. <laughs> Go look it up here. Um, oh, the Triangle Waste Company fire. You know, yeah. And here we are fighting the same battles still as women, as workers, not just women, men too. Um, and we're fighting them really hard right now. Um, it, it, it's sad to me that that so much progress is trying to be set back so far. So um, anyway, there's, some, there's a great documentary on HBO on it. I also saw some pieces um, on C-SPAN 3, if you get that, of um, where they did some retrospectives too, which looked very interesting. I didn't see the whole thing. But um, we've got, like, one minute left, so what do you want to say to wrap it up? <laughs> well, let's thank our sponsor again, Bubble Genius, um, for yes. sponsoring our show. They're, they're at bubblegenius.com, and they sell a lot of uh, bath products, including some really environmentally friendly vegan options. And, and creative styles. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Um, yes. And thanks. Julie, for coming on the show. As soon Sorry, as we were thank in the last minute. <laughs> thank you both for coming on the show because really our listeners did not want to hear me talk to myself for an hour. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, thank you all. Thank you, both of you, Julie and Jalos and Bubble Genius, and we will see you next week. <laughs> Actually, right. I guess we have 30 seconds here, but...
Um, we could all we could all talk about Donald Trump bringing up the birther thing and leave on that note. But how about if instead we just say rest in peace, Elizabeth Taylor, and thanks for all you did for AIDS. Oh, amen to that. Yes, yes, yes. she definitely deserves that. It's very sad to me. I mean, talk about an icon of my whole life. You know, Elizabeth Taylor was always the one that you saw when I was a kid, you know, in the news and everything. So. Yeah, she was the big, big movie star, the old-style movie star. So there you go. All right, well, thanks, everybody, and have a really great day. You too. Thanks, you too. And you've been listening to the Mama Crats Mama Chat. Um, You can find us here every week on Wednesdays at 9 Pacific, 12 Eastern. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.